Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. Today, I will be chatting with author and traumatic brain injury survivor, Mark Glasser. This episode is brought to you by Minnesota Functional Neurology, a Minneapolis-based clinic staffed by a caring and progressive team of functional neurologists who are experienced in treating post-concussion rehabilitation, chronic pain, dizziness, whiplash, and migraines. They are the concussion doctors you can trust for comprehensive brain health rehabilitation in Minnesota. They have greatly helped me and many others in the Twin Cities. You can find them online at mnfunctionalneurology.com. Hi, everyone. I am Amy Zalmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury one podcast at a time. Those of you who may not be familiar with who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I am a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, and I volunteer on the Brain Injury Association of America's Brain Injury Advisory Council. And I recently released my first book, Life with a Traumatic Brain Injury, Finding the Road Back to Normal. You can learn more about me at facesoftbi.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer to keep up to date on what we are doing on the podcast. And today our guest is Mark Glasser. And Mark is the author of 58 Feet, The Second That Changed Our Lives. He grew up in a small ranching town of Calhoun, Colorado, surrounded by airplanes and motorcycles. His love of motorcycles followed him into an adulthood, and when he met his wife, Robin, through a mutual friend, he often took her on long dates on his motorcycle. In 2010, Mark and Robin's lives were unexpectedly changed when they were involved in a motorcycle accident. Robin sustained a concussion, but Mark collided with the car and sustained a traumatic brain injury. He was airlifted to a level one trauma center in Lakewood, Colorado, where he spent 30 days in the neurosurgical ICU before being transferred to Craig Hospital for rehabilitation. He has since welcomed two children into the world and lives in Denver. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. I am so happy to have you here today. I hope I think I'm having a tiny technical difficulty getting him into my queue here. Um, it looks like my internet is being a little putsy this morning, so I apologize for that. Um, we are waiting for him to hop in here. Oh, you got to love live technology. <laughs> so while I'm waiting for him to hop in here, um, I will just let you guys know I finished reading his book uh, two nights ago. Again, it's called 58 Feet, The Second That Changed Our Lives. And it was so uplifting. Mark had such a positive attitude um, through his entire recovery. And reading his book, you know, really, whenever you read a fellow survivor's book, you can, you know, feel what they're going through and, reading his book was like i said it was it was uplifting which you know 
not always are survivor books uplifting. And his was so uplifting um, as he talked about his journey and his recovery. And he had such an incredibly positive attitude through his recovery and his wife and his family and the support that he had um, was just absolutely fabulous. And I just, I encourage everyone to grab his book um, again, that's 58 seconds, um, or 58 feet, the second that changed our lives. And um, I have the, the link on Amazon in the show notes. So um, be sure to click on that and check out his book. And the proceeds go to Craig Hospital, which is where he had his rehabilitation. Um, and sorry, guys, as I'm talking, I am trying to reset my Internet here to get him pulled into the show. Um, I'm sure he's sitting there going, what's going on? Because um, he can hear from his end, but I can't quite get him into our queue. Um, so, Mark, if you can hear me, just hang on a second. I'm getting you in here. <laughs> and I apologize to everyone listening, but this is what happens when you have a live show sometimes. Um, anyway, so uh, I met Mark, or I didn't actually meet him, but I found him through a, a shout out looking for fellow TBI authors to be on my podcast and his representative reached out to me and told me um, that he was very interested and shared his book with me and I was just very very inspired by his story and by his positive outlook through his entire recovery um, and as I'll have him share in a few minutes here um, he had a lot of injuries he had a lot of setbacks and he had he powered through it all with a positive attitude. So um, I'm I'm very excited to have him here to share that with you. And um, here we go. Let me give it another whirl. Here we go, Mark. I'm trying to bring you in again. Um, there we go. Are you in, Mark? I'm here, Amy. Good morning. Yay! <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, could you hear me as I was talking? I could hear you, and yeah, um, just like good. our daily good, lives good. in these TBIs, we we have setbacks with our internet as well. And we just reset <laughs> and move forward. <laughs> Kidding! <laughs> That's exactly it. I'm like I'm trying to talk and reset the internet at the same time. So I'm pretty impressed. I came out somewhat coherent. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, welcome, Mark. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, and thank you uh, for your listeners, and thank you for the, the, the warm introduction and your positive thoughts and comments about our book. I really appreciate that. Absolutely, and I really meant it. I, you know, you're, it really was just so inspiring, and I, you know, and well, I'm not going to spoil it all. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with having you share with our listeners what happened. You you had a motorcycle accident. Um, so why don't you kind of take us through that? Sure. And, uh, you know, your your introduction there to really kind of highlighted some of my background. Uh, Callahan, Colorado is a really small community in, in Callahan, about a, a, a community of about 500 people where my great-great-grandparents homesteaded there. So we've got long roots and traditions in Callahan uh, around machinery, all of our, our lives, uh, motorcycles, air, airplanes, tractors, heavy equipment, the whole thing. So on this, this summer day, um, Seven years ago, my wife and I decided to take a, a ride through the, the Colorado Rockies, beautiful July day, and, and our motorcycle was in the shop for some repairs. So we've been passively looking for something a little bit more um, 
as a touring bike, something a little bit heavier and comfortable to ride. So we rented one and started off on a Friday with no exact agenda. Um, had a great Friday ride all day Saturday, Sunday when we were coming home. Um, popped over Monarch Pass towards Salida. And the next thing I know, um, my brother is, a, is asleep in a chair at the end of my bed in a, a hospital. Mm-hmm. I've got a bunch of tubes tied to me and, and wires. And, and while I knew what was going on, I didn't have a full comprehension. And so uh, during that month before that, um, when I was in the ICU, I have no recollection. So there, there's really 30 days of my life that does not exist in my time. Um, but physically I was there. I uh, certainly was not mentally. Uh, the first 10 days I was in a coma and then gradually came out of that and, and, and uh, started to regain some mental faculties and um, some comprehension. Extent of my injuries, not only was it the, the traumatic brain injury, the brain injury itself to the right frontal lobe of my head, but also had a break in my C2 in my neck, the cervical 2 bone as well as the cervical 7. Pretty much crushed my chest and uh, um, had three feet, uh, three chest tubes put in my, my chest to keep me alive and breathing. And then um, uh, tear my rotator cuff. And then, as uh, you said, there after 30 days at the NSICU at, at uh, St. Anthony's Hospital, I was transferred to Craig Hospital in Inglewood, Colorado, where they are a freestanding, not-for-profit hospital that treats traumatic brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. So the very first days there, I was extremely angry about being there. I didn't know exactly what was going on. Um, yeah, I knew I had an injury, but did not know the extent of it. It took me about four or five days to, to probably come to a realization of what was happening and why I was there. In the meantime, I, I had still had these tubes in my, my uh, nose down to my stomach feeding me through uh, an IV. I had a, a trach in my, in my uh, throat, had a, a neck collar on, so I couldn't move, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, and that just attributed more to the to the irritability that I was experiencing. But the whole time, um, yeah, I can't say enough about my family and, and my friends that were there to support me. Uh, when I landed at, at La- the St. Anthony's Hospital in Lakewood uh, via Flight for Life, there was six of our close friends were there at the hospital waiting before my family was there. Uh, my dad got there a little bit later, and, and that night um, they had to track him down in Callahan uh, to get permission to put two holes in my head um, for intracranial pressure valve and ICP valve, as well as to drain any pressure. And uh, he had to get permission to that before he finally got to the hospital. And we got to the hospital, and he's talking to the doctor, and my dad's kind of a no-BS guy, as you might ex- expect pilots to be, and asked what the prognosis was. And the doctor said, well, Mr. Glazier, uh, we're going to say we got about a 5% chance to make it through the night. Wow. So the next morning, the next morning I was still there, and, and uh, all I needed was a chance. And so we fought through that, and uh, Robert showed up the next day, and um, we had found out about 10 days prior to that that she was pregnant with our first child. And so she showed up and um, knelt down by my, my bedside and, and gave me some words of encouragement, and, and we moved forward through the, the next 30 days. And, and we had friends and family and, and colleagues and, and on and on, all through the hospital the whole time. And what I understand is there was never no less than about 10 people in the waiting room 24 hours a day. Um, there was a friend or a family member in my hospital room in the ICU 24 hours a day just to, to watch and offer encouragement and, and be supportive. And then when I got to Craig, the same thing, always somebody there. And when I got there on August 18th, um, not quite seven years ago, uh, the first week was spent, the first few days was spent doing testing and x-rays and different things in the first team meeting that the doctor told me, well, uh, we're looking probably late October before you get out of here. But based upon your early um, testing, let's say the 1st of October, and 
I have a little bit of a disagreement. I have a little bit of a strong personality, and it should <laughs> continue to show through and challenge the, the doctor and the medical team to get to me out of there earlier. So I agreed, and we agreed that September 30th was going to be my, my discharge date. And as we moved forward and, and got closer to that date, uh, the doctor came in one morning and, and said that uh, it's going to be a little bit earlier, and when would that be? And I asked, so, well, September 23rd is a good date. And uh, I said, that's my birth date. It would be great to get out of here on my birthday. So on September 23rd, I was discharged from Craig Hospital as a, as a fully functional, if you will, uh, being able to stand alone and, and do my own things, and, and uh, off I went. So in that time, uh, there's always, like I said, people coming and going. Robin would come over every night after work. She was a school teacher. would come over every night after work and spend hours. My dad would come up. My brother came up a couple times with my nephews. And just to show the, the way that Craig Hospital handles things, and it's not like your typical hospital. Uh, people don't dress in scrubs, and you would never know that you were in a, a medical facility because it is a rehab facility. And um, part of the rehab is you get to have family and friends around you to do your rehab. And so a couple times when my, my brother would come up with my nephews, they came down and brought their swimming suits and jumped into the pool with me for my pool therapy. And we just continued to march on. There were, there were setbacks as far as um, having difficulty breathing at, at uh, St. Anthony's and having the crash cart brought in and kept me alive and, and having a chest tube put in my chest mid-flight from Salida to, to Denver and, and uh, continue to work for, towards a, a cause and towards a, a goal. And every night I'd lay in bed and think about what challenges I, I had and what uh, objects and, and goals I did not achieve. And, and I'd get mad and, and frustrated, and I'd, I'd take a breath. And I'd reevaluate and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do different tomorrow. And this is how I'm going to make, uh, <clears throat> make positive strides. Uh, there's one, one particular moment in time that uh, I remember, well, two of them really. Um, the first day I got to eat. 46 days after our accident, I, I go into the, the cafeteria at Craig Hospital there, and, and um, Myrna, the, the lady working at the, the food counter there, never met before. I walk in, or didn't walk, I get pushed in the door of my wheelchair, and, and she says, Mark, Mark, you get to eat today. I have something special for you. And so the, uh, not even knowing this person, that, that family atmosphere at Craig Hospital continued to drive home how it's a, a group effort and it's a family effort. A couple of days later, my dad came up, uh, came up for for dinner, and, and he sat down. We all sat down together, and and uh, as we sit there, he walks up, walks walks up behind me, and gives me a big hug, and says, "I've been waiting six weeks to do this." So we got to. Uh, he said, "I'm very proud of you," and uh, we got to sit down and, and we got to have a meal together. And uh, I don't care how old you are or what the circumstance is, when a parent says they're proud of you, it, it means a lot. And continued to, to drive forward, and, and after discharge, uh, I got to spend uh, the next six months back and forth doing outpatient. Had friends that would drive me back and forth to the hospital, and while I was in a wheelchair when I got there, I got to uh, stand on my own two feet and walk out of there. And since then, we've had our, our two kids, um, Matthew and Piper, and, and they're both special to, to us. They're special to the Craig family, and, and we get to, to enjoy a lot of things that people don't get to enjoy on a, on a daily basis, but the recovery's been awesome. Um, why I wouldn't want to do it again. I feel very grateful for what I've, I've accomplished and what I've been supported to do. So I want to back up just a little bit in your story. And the day of your accident, your wife, act, or I guess she was your girlfriend at the time, correct? No, or we've been married, married a little over a year, about a year and a half we've been married. You had been married. Okay. So yes. your wife, she was taken to a totally different hospital. Um, as you were airlifted to your hospital. Um, 
and it took her what a day to get to you. They had to keep her overnight for observation. Yeah, we were uh, the accident happened in Salida, Colorado, and um, I tell you that the first responders and hospital there absolutely amazing. Um, first nine one one call came in at twelve oh five, and at twelve twenty three we were in the emergency room in Salida, Colorado there, and she had a concussion. She was concussed. Um, I obviously had much more traumatic injuries. Somehow or another, between the first um, side of this vehicle turned in front of us and impacting that vehicle, we were able to get her off the bike. So I, I w- went head first in the side of the car, and uh, she hit the ground and tumbled and um, rested on her butt in front of the car with a concussion. So she spent the night in the hospital there, Heart of the Rockies Hospital there in Slida, while I was airlifted. So the next seven hours after that accident, after our accident, she did not have an idea of where I was or what was going on, just being assured by the nurse that uh, she was going to be okay, I was okay in being treated, and that there would be more information. And finally, when uh, about 7.30 that night, when her sister uh, Brenda came over from uh, the mountains where she was staying, she came over from Fraser, um, the, she was finally starting to understand what was going on, and, and uh while they did know, not know the exact extent of my injuries, they knew it was pretty, or Brenda knew it was pretty severe and didn't want to or wasn't able to share all the information with Robin as we need to try and keep her in a calm state and under, and really focus on, on her recovery at the time. So the next morning, um, they left Salida late morning and got to St. Anthony's about 12, 1230, uh, where her dad and her mom had flown that morning from, from uh, Yankton, South Dakota. Uh, they were able to get a, a, a pilot friend of theirs uh, to fly them out private to Denver, and, and they came in, in St. Anthony's and met my dad there. And my dad and her dad, uh, Jerry, met Robin at the, the door when she got dropped off uh, by Brenda, and they parked and came to the hospital. And um, my dad and Jerry talked, and they agreed that my dad would talk to her a little bit before they came in the hospital. So my dad sat Robin down and, and kind of gave her the, the warning and the brief of this is what's going on and just be prepared. He doesn't look the same as what he did yesterday. And so she came in the room and, and was very uh, positive and strong about it. And, and uh, came over and greeted me, told me she was there and that everything was going to be okay. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And, you know, it's such a powerful journey that you both had to take. And throughout the entire um, time that you were in the first hospital when you were in a coma, um, your Robin and your friends and family wrote on your Caring Bridge site. And that's kind of how you supplemented your book because obviously you don't remember those days. So you used some of the Caring Bridge um, entries. And I just want to kind of take a moment and, you know, let people listening, you know, like if there's a caregiver listening um, who's going through something right now, it, that's a powerful way to keep track of what's happening, whether it's on Caring Bridge or you just simply keep a journal. But for the person when they come out of that coma, um, you know, they won't be able to, to really handle it right away, but someday they'll want to know exactly what happened. And to be able to go back through those entries, I just thought that was so, it was such a great way to bring your book together. And then, you know, at the end of the book, you talk about how you went back through those Caring Bridge entries and you read all the comments. And eventually, you took over the Caring Bridge page when you got to Craig Hospital and you were up to it. You actually took over um, 
uh, writing the entries. So I, I just kind of want to really stress that for people that that's, you know, it's a powerful way to keep people in touch, but it's also a really great way to preserve those memories for the person who isn't experiencing them. So do you want to comment to that at all, Mark? Yeah, and that's a great point, Amy. And, and Caring Bridge was a, a lifesaver and, and certainly a supporting document or, or website that helped everybody. Uh, early on, as uh, any person going through a traumatic experience, you know, the survivor and the supporting cast, if you will, the family and friends, um, people are always asking questions. Well, how is he doing? What's going on here? What's the prognosis? How are you doing? And so the Caring Bridge site was a way for Robin, who was first brought to her through her sister Brenda, uh, as a way for Robin to write daily updates without people asking a bunch of questions. So Robin could sit back at any point during the day or the night and gather her thoughts and take a moment of her own time and go onto the site and, and write, this is what happened today, or this is what's going on. And uh, you know, if you want to come visit, please call Brenda first or call Stephen first or whoever it might be and come over and visit. Um, you know, the neurosurgical ICU is not a place where you just go hang out with your, with your loved one and, and um, have conversations. <laughs> right. You know, it's uh, it's literally a life or death. It's breath of breath of whether that person is going to be alive and, and see the next uh, the next sunrise. sunrise. So the Caring Bridge site, as you mentioned, is a, is a great source for people to update uh, community. And yes, I did take over the the posting after I got to Craig, and I was allowed to have my computer in in moderation. Uh, when I got to Craig, I was still unable to walk. I was still unable to eat. I was unable to to drink um, anything. I was able, unable to get up and really go to the bathroom by myself. Um, so when I finally had the opportunity to, to do something on my own, such as, as read emails and listen to voicemails and read this Caring Bridge site, I took the opportunity for it. And it was in moderation. I could do 30 minutes at a time, and then that escalated a little bit more by day. And, yeah, there were some times I skewed that a little bit because the clock didn't work as quite at, the, at the my pace as I wanted it to. But when I did finally get on the site after about a uh, week, week and a half at Craig, and at that point, uh, there was over 10,000 hits on the site and almost 2,000 uh, posts. And that very, I felt very um, appreciated, very special, and felt that I needed to extend the same thing back to everybody that took their time out of their day. So what I did for the next week is I, I read every one of those posts. I responded to every one of them. I read every one of my emails. responded to every one of those. I read every one of my cards. I read, listened to every one of my voicemail and responded to each and every one that I possibly could. I really felt that um, if people took time out of their day to care about what I was doing and to uh, write, then I needed to, I owed that back to them. So as much as I owed it to myself to work hard every Craig Hospital, I really owed it to everybody that was in the supporting lineup and supporting cast to me. Um, some of the, the friends that we've we've gained out of out of our experience is just uh, can never be replaced, and the the, the strength that that they had and and the show of support that they gave. Uh, to Robin and the family is, is unbelievable. And I'm sure it's the same thing that anybody else would do for uh, their loved ones, but it, just, the experience yourself is very uh, heartwarming and, and it's, it carries with you forever, uh, which really what led to the, the book. Um, knowing that uh, at that time when Robin was pregnant and that as time went on, our memories were going to kind of start to forget things and, and some of these these uh, experiences, not why they'd be um, – Oh, I don't want to say uh, unimportant. They'd be more important if we could write something. So when our kids got old enough to understand it, then have a journal to to uh, refer back to. When I wrote the journal, as I shared our story with many others, uh, strangers, 
at the best, uh, flying on an airplane, I just start talking to, talking to people about what happened. And um, I was encouraged and, and, and um, directed to, to write a book. And, and well, I'm not a writer. I'm a talker. I'm a storyteller. There's a big difference in taking your story and putting it into words uh, that people can understand. It was a challenge. And I decided, well, if I'm going to write a book, I'm not mm-hmm. going to do it for a capitalistic <laughs> uh, piece on my side. Um, Craig Hospital relies on uh, public donations and, and uh, private donations, um, grants, insurance subsidies. Here they can. They, they don't take money and uh, go out and, and try and, and, and make money on it to be a profitable endeavor. Uh, they help anybody. doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is or your, or your injury. If there's a place like Craig that can help you, uh, they get a bed for you. And you might not be able to afford it. And so we take the profits from our book. As you mentioned, we, we've been sending it back to the foundation to help those who are a little bit less fortunate. Uh, we are very fortunate in a lot of ways, and uh, there's people out there that don't have that same ability. Uh, Craig Hospital, almost 50% of their, their patients come from outside the Denver metro area, and a large portion of that come from out of state and out of country. So when you have families that uh, you have, that might have both parents have to work to, to support their, their family or their children, and all of a sudden one is not available to work and they're out of state, they don't have that opportunity to, to pick up from their daily lives and come support their loved ones. And they may not have the, the financial capability to have the family come stay for three days in a hotel or pay for their travel, and that's what the Craig Foundation does. Uh, if you need help, they're going to help you. And so I've got to do what I've got to do to help others, just like they were there to help me. That's so awesome. And, I, you know, it just it's, your story is so inspiring, and, you know, you're, you're one of the very fortunate ones. You came out of this. Um, you know, alive and kicking, you know, not so many motorcycle accidents don't end the way that yours does. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, you're seven, almost seven years, we're almost at your anniversary date. Um, you're almost seven years out. Are, how are you um, now? Are you still dealing with any after effects of the brain injury? Or do you feel that you've made a pretty good recovery? Well, that's another great question. And the, the thing about TBIs, um, the person who sustained it or anybody, you can't see it. You, know, you can't see that, that mm-hmm. disability. You can't see that challenge that goes on. And so when you, have a, you see a person that might be confined to a wheelchair for whatever reason, you can see the challenges they have by your eyes and you can do what you can do to help them. The challenges that exist now with the TBI, and, and there's still a few there, um, I know what, what's when they're going to occur. I can see them coming. I can sense them coming. Robin and a few other people that, that are very close to me, especially Robin, can see it coming. And we've got to adjust what's going on at the time to stay away from from the, the, the stressful outcome that's going to happen. And when I do find these challenges, a lot of the, the things are I'm not able to articulate. I'm not able to um, take what's in my mind and really put out to my uh, who I'm having a conversation with or what I'm writing. Uh, to understand. And so when I see that coming with the onset of that, I, like I said, I just remove myself from what I'm doing, whether it's talking on the phone, whether it's at work, whether it's watching TV, whatever it is. And if I'm, there's a lot of time, I'll sit and watch TV and have something on that I won't even pay attention to. It's just kind of like that white noise in the background. And that's just kind of to relax my brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's things that continue to go on. And, um, you know, I would say that for, for persons who have a TBI, uh, that are listening now, you could probably you probably chuckle to yourselves as you experience the same. Um, if you, <laughs> right. you know, I, I don't want anybody to have a TBI by any means, 
Uh, if, you have, if you're a family member who um, your loved one has experienced one or you have a friend who has experienced one, <clears throat> I would say that the, my, from my seat, the, the best message would be to be patient. Um, one of the things yeah. in my last few meetings before I was discharged was um, you're going to feel these effects for two years. And I kind of laughed and shrugged it off. And, and by golly, lo and behold, those doctors yeah. actually didn't know what they're talking about. You know, it was a, it was a full two yeah. years. And now, like you said, we're now seven years, and there's still things that go on. And like I said, the bad thing is yeah. you can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't taste it, uh, either as the person who suffered it or the, the one that's affected by it. Um, but you, you know what goes on. And over time, you learn to understand it and you learn to adapt. Uh, I can't change it. So I just have to deal with it, and I have to make the best of what I've been given, which is a whole heck of a lot. And uh, I'll never complain about some of the hurdles I've, I've had to face because I've, I've had the opportunity to face those hurdles. Most of them I've got over, so I've had to go around. And as I guess said, this, uh, Mark, this injury wasn't a life. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to cut you off. I'm so sorry, but we're down to the final minute of the show. And I just your story has been so wonderful. I thank you so very much for being here and sharing with everyone today. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate the time and effort, and uh, I appreciate your listeners. Thank you so much, Mark. And again, you can find his book on Amazon. I have that link in the show notes for everyone if you're interested. Um, And thank you again, Mark, for being here. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And thanks again to our sponsor, Minnesota Functional Neurology, the concussion doctor you can trust for brain health rehabilitation in the Midwest. And again, check out facesoftbi.com to listen to previous podcasts and see our upcoming topics. Thank you all for being here today. Enjoy your day, and I will see you all again next time. Thank you, everyone.